You're listening to Don't Waste Water. You will have probably some listeners that kind of go, but what is a human right? You should be putting a price on it. You shouldn't be using markets. But on the upside is, is that if we have markets, we'll actually understand its value and we'll be able to account for the water. Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Valter, and in today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Katrina Donahy as my guest. I've been in hundreds of conversations when the first people you see is they roll their eyes Oh, blockchain, and they take a heavy sign and they go, oh, that's that crypto thing, we're not interested because, you know, it's that dark web. Katrina is the CEO and co-founder of Civic Ledger, a company building trust layer solutions for the markets of tomorrow. It wasn't until there was a chapter around charities and donations and how Bitcoin would help with that transparency that it all came crashing down. I said to myself, wow, this is something that we've never had that potentially could be a tool to solve that problem. Is water always flowing to its best use? Well, from groundwater management in California to our repeated failures to achieve SDG 6 through water trading in Australia, non-revenue water or the perspective of water wars, I'd say we quite often answer that question on that microphone and it rather was a no. Water is not always flowing to that said best use. Then there's this sentence attributed to Albert Einstein. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Turn it around and it says the following, if you're expecting different results, maybe try something new. And what is it that we're trying in the water industry for now several millennia? A centralized approach where infrastructure and money streams converge to central power places. It can be centralized markets, centralized networks, or centralized industry players, but the keyword is obvious and it's centralized. So what if it was about time to go decentral, to distribute our approach? Well, if you recall, we've already explored that avenue when it comes to technologies with Epic Cleantech, Fluence, or Bossac, to name a few, and it looked promising. But do you recall Christopher Gasson's message last week? There are two global layers in the water industry, technology and finance. And can finance become decentral? Well, unless you've been living in a cave for the past decade, you've probably heard of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Well, Katrina will take us in a minute through the fascinating and you'll see successful experiments of blockchain as a way to address a water market failure that runs worldwide into the hundreds of billion dollars. We'll scratch the surface of the potential synergies it could unleash and you might even start seeing NFTs as something else than pure speculation. But I'll stop spoiling for now and leave you with my usual yet crucial recommendation. If you like what you here, please share that episode with at least two of your colleagues or friends. Spread the word, grab their phones, subscribe them to the podcast. They'll thank you when they'll find out about all the value they get for free from the amazing speakers I trick to come talking into my microphone every Wednesday. Please do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Katrina. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to have you today, excited for 
many reasons, but one of them being that I was really looking for your area of expertise. And it took me a bit of travel around Google, and I'm really happy that, <laughs> that I stumbled upon you. And we are going to discuss this element of stumbling upon, because I think that's also part of your path. But let's start with a good old tradition. Can you send me a postcard about the place you're at and say me something about your place, which I would ignore by now? Good evening or good morning to all your listeners. My name is Katrina and I'm sitting in Brisbane in Queensland in Australia. So we have the Great Barrier Reef in Brisbane, but also importantly, we really embrace our traditional names of our cities. So for Brisbane in the Jaguar language and the Turbo language is Mianjin. So I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners to which the land I'm coming from, where I'm speaking from today, and also any First Nation listeners that you have listening to your podcast, I'd like to pay my respects to uh, past, present and emerging leaders. So Brisbane is a really interesting place. It's a, it's a small city in the bottom of Queensland on just above the New South Wales border. Famously held the Expo 88 way back then, but it's a beautiful city, subtropical and a gateway to extraordinary beaches. And also we have Fraser Island just to our north, not too far away, which is the largest sand island on the planet. And it has beautiful freshwater lakes and things like that. So if you ever come to Australia, Fraser Island, you'll see dingoes. You'll learn a lot about the history of the island, but beautiful place to be. That's a thorough postcard. So thanks a lot for this element of stumbling upon. Actually, I just stealed it from you and you didn't stumble upon, you struck upon blockchain. And that is going to be our deep dive in a minute. But right before we go into the deep dive, you've been working 20 years in the public and non-for-profit sectors. What's the link between that portion of your life and this element of blockchain? Yes, I, for my penance, I actually spent many years in government. I was fortunate enough to work in all levels of government in Australia. How this all came together was that in my um, early 30s, I worked in disaster management. So I was working with a lot of local governments in trying to get them to understand their natural disaster risk. And one of the things I found quite interesting was even though we were spending millions of dollars every year in giving funding to local governments to sort of map out their plans and their risks and all that sort of stuff, all of this really key information was never able to be shared with anybody else across departments or industries, verticals, or up and down government. And it's because when you do these processes, it's really about auditing, making sure the funding was used for the right way, but nobody really understands how to take the data out and, and make connections with it or how to share it across other entities for them to take that information and just into their own systems to get a better understanding of the full situation. And I see this over and over again. But I guess the turning point for me was my last paid job, and I would say paid job because obviously I'm at a startup that's been going for a little while now, but I was working in the non-for-profit sector. And, you know, when we donate to charities, we really want to know where's the money going through, where's it going, what's the traceability, can I see it? And that was the thing that really struck me again was that I was working in a really important charity doing great work, but I couldn't actually provide any mechanisms of transparency on how donations were being um, utilised or any of those outcomes of that data. And so, you know, people who support the charities don't really have a window view into how charity dollars are used. And and just a couple of other stories, but it led me to quitting my job, as you do. You sort of 
decide that you want to quit your job. And I was involved with another startup and we were looking at a certain problem. But at the same time, um, this was 2015, um, this is around August, September 2015. And I don't know, some of your listeners might know the name that I'm just about to say, but because I'm an Aussie, but we had a guy called Craig Wright who was getting chased by the Australian Taxation Office. Now, Craig Wright now today has come out and said he's Satoshi Nakamoto, but that's for another podcast. But I was looking at all of this and I kept on wondering why this thing called Bitcoin and things like that. And at that time I had little children and I was in the library, their kids, their uh, local library, and I found a book about Bitcoin. And I'm always one that opens myself up for serendipitous moments. I think if you're hearing about it, it's like when you're on the internet and all of a sudden you what you're thinking starts to appear in your feeds. So I picked up the book and I took it home and I read it and it made sense. It took my long time to get to understand what I was reading because, you know, we're challenging the monetary, global monetary systems in this book. And um, it wasn't until there was a chapter around charities and donations and how Bitcoin would help with that transparency that it all came crashing down. I said to myself, wow, this is something that we've never had that potentially could be a tool to solve that problem. So I guess that was the first thing, that moment, read something, opened my mind up, made the connection, and then wanted to find everything I could about it. So the startup I was with at that time, we basically did this massive mind mapping experience and sort of mapped out the the global ecosystem, which was very small back then. That's 2015? Yes, it was 2015. So 2015, you get to know Bitcoin. At that time, there's not much more around. I think Ethereum was created along the same... Yeah, yeah. Ethereum was just coming out in 2014, but it wasn't until 2015 that the white papers... And we started to see all the tiles getting put on the Ethereum um, website to sort of see what projects were coming up. A lot of them were in stealth mode. We now know why, because they were consensus as projects. But... That led me to some other things, like obviously Twitter is a really great source to find people who are talking about the technology. And I found one particular person who really stood out, which was Leanne Kemp. And Leanne has a very similar, well, she comes from New Zealand like I do, but she's also an Aussie, New Zealand Aussie, lived in my area. And she moved over to London in 2015 to start her Everledger company because she knew that provenance was going to be a really big thing, particularly for precious things like diamonds. And I started following her on Twitter and that led me learning more about what she was doing and me asking a lot more questions. And I found things with people like Finya Gupta, um, Primavera de Filippi, who was the most incredible thought leader at that time. Primavera, and I it makes me a little bit upset because she's actually one of the founding thought leaders bringing the blockchain analysis to a socioeconomic or a sociology or an economics perspective. She's an academic. She's gone back into academia. The last piece of the puzzle was April 2016. The Queensland government did the very first innovation summit and Leanne turned up in person. So I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in the audience, so excited, listening to everything she had to say. She was the only person on the stage talking about blockchain technology. All the other panellists talked, you know, they were asked questions and they dismissed it and went, yeah, nah. But she was the only one person standing up there really proud and really excited and very succinct about this tech. She came off stage and I went up to her all excited like a fangirl and jumped out and said hello and we had a bit of a chat and I sort of had a whinge. I said, oh, Brisbane, doing nothing. 
And she just said to me, Katrina, you just need to do something. You know, you don't need to wait for permission. If you have something that you want to do with this tech, don't wait, go. And that's when I joined the Bitcoin Brisbane meetup. And that is another chapter. But that was those moments. And I think it's when you pay attention and that's the thing, you can either listen to it and say, nah, not going to listen to it, or you actually really open yourself up. And when you do open yourself up to these sort of things, the connections start to happen and things start to become much more, you start to make sense of it. If I fast forward to 2020 or 2022, actually, I'm not living in the past. <laughs> so if I fast forward to 2022, Today, when you discuss blockchain and Bitcoin, and you discuss that with the man on the road, it's about speculation. And sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, but it's really like a financial goods and almost a financial toy where you can just be playing around. There's much more in the world of blockchain, cryptocurrencies, but also NFTs and everything we hear around. And you're addressing a specific portion of that. My question here is, if you're promoting the use of blockchain for something, let's say, broader than these just financial tools or toys, what is the perception of the people you're talking with, this layman's like, like I might be? How do they react to that? Look, this is always a good question because we've seen over the years, you know, when everything was really exciting and then it went into fear and uncertainty, doubt, and then we had the ICO and then we had the crypto winter and we had the bull run and all that sort of stuff. And obviously we had the first DAO back in 2016, which caused, you know, <laughs> another big big change into the industry because Ethereum had to fork. Because of my background, having worked in government and working with multiple people and things like that, I've learned that you don't lean in with the tech. You don't talk about the technology because it really, it confuffles people and then they lose sight of what you're actually saying. They sort of go off and their brains get all confused and so they lose sight of hearing you. So We've always been a problem-led approach, like, you know, what is the problem that you need to solve? And let's have a look and see how you're using certain other ways of solving that problem and looking at, well, perhaps that could be an alternative and what is the goal of solving the problem? What is the things that you want to achieve around, you know, the problem? And we always hear trust, transparency, <laughs> data, which is the same thing over and over again. And that's when you slowly bring in, the concepts of, well, okay, once well, if you could solve it this way and when they get used to the conversation, then you can start to say, okay, well, this is the tech. And then they go, ah, right. So they're less inclined to react to you because we know this, we've seen it. I've been in hundreds of conversations when the first people you see is they roll their eyes, oh, blockchain, and they take a heavy sigh and then they go, oh, that's that crypto thing, we're not interested because, you know, it's that dark web. And what I've learned now is, that's a typical reaction to someone who has not decided to go and self-educate because there's so much free stuff on the internet to go and learn about this stuff. You can go and listen to podcasts. You can go watch some YouTube. So as all things that are new, you know, I was around when the first internet was born, email, mobile phones, you know, go on and on and on. There will be a camp of people that will say, oh, we can't touch that because that's brand new. And there'll be a camp of people that are curious. And as we've learned through history, it's the ones that are curious that will actually, ones that will actually drive it forward. And then slowly the ones that said no will go, hmm, perhaps I was wrong. I'm now ready to listen and ready to play. So you learn, you learn, and you learn a lot. 
So you'd let them have their rant and you, you know, do a lot of nodding, keep your face smiling, and then you start to talk about different things. But, yeah, it's the challenge in the past. When it was early days, everyone led with the code. So there were so many workshops, you know, so many training sessions that popped up where people were asked to pay a lot of money and then you had the coder standing in the front of the room and all they wanted to do was go under the hood. And if you're talking to people that deal with problems and strategy, they're not going to understand, you know, throughput and hash rates and SHA-256 and blah, 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 blah. They just want to know, will it solve my problem? Tell me why is this better? I'd like to dive into the actual application of your technology today, which is a bit of a leapfrog towards the place in history where we are right now. You mentioned podcasts to get informed. Let me just shout out to your podcast, which was very useful to me to prepare for that discussion. It's a podcast from Wondery in the US. It's called Business Wars. So that's the name of the podcast. And they did a series which they called Crypto Wars. And when you listen to that, it might be like they are battling each other, but really they made the history of cryptocurrencies, of blockchain. And... Um, Really, if you're a layman like me, it helps you to just dig into it. By the way, you mentioned some terms which we might have to explain a bit, like when you're saying ICO, what is it? Oh, yes, the good old initial coin offering, the initial coin offering, which made people very rich, made people very poor, and a lot of startups don't exist anymore. So it's like going into the market, like for what for companies, you usually do this IPO, initial public offering, but yes. the equivalent for currencies, cryptocurrencies. Yeah, it was. And the upside, what the ICOs did bring that wasn't, you know, that IPOs don't do is they actually gave anybody access to investing. And, you know, that's the whole point is to ensure that anybody, I mean, obviously, when the US was still making its mind up, because obviously China made ICOs illegal. And I remember being in San Francisco and being told I wasn't allowed to speak about ICOs or, else, or pull out a white paper or else I would have got arrested. So it depends on each jurisdiction on how they're actually looking at it from a legal perspective. But ICOs, when they first started, like because Ethereum, you know, when Consensus founded Ethereum, you know, Joe Lubin and Vitalik founded Consensus, you know, Ethereum was an ICO. And I will tell your listeners that I think they were 10 cents, 10 cents to buy an ETH back all those days. So, you know, we have seen various, and, you know, Hedera is an ICO. So we still see them in happening, but they're not as shilly as what they used to be. And I'll say shilling as in shilling the coin. Pump and dump. There would be so many directions in which I could sidetrack you. I could give you the example of Eric Larchevêque, the French guy who founded Ledger, who was part of that ICU of the Ethereum and who used to own thousands of Ethereums and who sold them when he thought he was making good money out of it and would have have kept them, he would be a billionaire, which is nevertheless, but he would be twice a billionaire. Yeah, look, a lot of people have the shoulda, coulda, woulda, because, you know, everyone says, ah, oh, coulda, shoulda, woulda, and we're like, yeah, well, you just move on. You just get into it whenever it is and make sure you're, you know, it's always a coulda, shoulda, woulda. That is, I would say, the part of blockchain and cryptocurrencies which we regularly hear about and that's not the part I'm interested in right now in this discussion, because what you're doing is very different and I would say broader. And I wouldn't have expected it to have a connection, but somehow it has a link with a discussion I had on that microphone with uh, Scott Hamilton about water trading in Australia. And he wrote a book, Sold on the River, a very fascinating book. I'm going to put the links to my conversation with Scott in the episode notes in case you missed it. 
But to me, the link with our conversation today is that what Scott said at the time on that microphone is the problem is not the concept of water trading. The problem is the way the markets are set up. If I'm just synthesizing what, what he was saying. And you are proposing an alternative and a solution somehow to exactly that. And not just theoretically, because as we will be discussing a bit more in depth, you go into practical step and you will be rolling out your water ledger solution. So let me start with the problem of it. What are you aiming to solve with water ledger? There's a couple of things. Um, so yes, yeah, Scott Hamilton, shout out to Scott. Scott is another thought leader in this country about water and markets, and he's an academic as well. So on a very high level, the problems that we are solving, which is systemic across all different markets across the globe, whether it be gold or monetary markets, but information asymmetry and opacity. Water markets in Australia are highly complex and very complicated. And the problem is, is that they've been built up over time with very complex regulation. And as a result, farmers, they use brokers or go to private exchanges to either put their water up for sale or to actually look for to water to buy. But the problem is, is that there's privileged information in the markets. So not everybody has the same information at the same time for them to have a rational decision. So as a result, there's a lot of assumptions that the markets are manipulated. So what we have is a lack of confidence and a lack of trust in the markets. And the problem with that is that you know, you will have probably some listeners that kind of go, but what is the human right? You should be putting a price on it. You shouldn't be using markets. But on the upside is, is that if we have markets, we'll actually understand its value and we'll be able to account for the water. So water markets are an important mechanism to ensure that we're able to not only manage water as a public good, but also ensure we understand its economic value and also in the future state around our cultural value as well. So the most important pieces of information, like in any market that you need for it to be rational, is often missing. Things like price. What's the last traded price of that water in that particular water scheme? And also, what is the authority, the property rights associated with those water, but also trade history and, and liquidity of the markets? We do have water markets that operate in a private sector sense, like we have, and I'm not not endorsing these brands, but I'm just going to sort of let you know who they are. So we do have Waterfine from Adelaide. So Waterfine's one of one of our oldest uh, sort of marketplaces. It's been around for about 20 years. But, you know, he's owned by Tom. Tom owns Waterfine. So all the data that gets associated with the trading is in his ownership. We have Royal Co and Water Exchange. And Royal, Water Exchange is the, the tech and Royal Co is a white label uses Water Exchange in their white labor. And there's another one called H2XO, which is owned by Expansive, which is a US company. So those are our four major exchanges. And then you have mid-tier exchanges or mid-tier companies. And then you have the thousands of water brokers that are not required to have a license in this country. So they're not regulated. They're not on a registry. And often they also have water rights. So if they're actually being a broker, they get inside information on how much water is to be valued at. And then you have the multitude of water registries that are operated by the regulators. So we have five states in Australia that operate those registries. They are not interoperable and none of the proprietary owned water exchanges are interoperable. So you can put your water on multiple markets and you could sell it five times over. And nobody's going to know until the regulator or the operator have to do the reconciliation of accounts. Accounts is an important word, which we'll talk a little bit about later. 
and then I can talk about the 350 water products because water is not fungible. Water is not a financial product. It's highly regulated. And it's all these complexities and complexities that have happened over years that have now created a really problem in the water markets in Australia, whereby we have a lot of antagonistic, a lot of lack of trust and a lack of confidence. And when water markets are not optimised, water is not optimised. So it's not going to its highest value use and we can't measure its economic outcome. And as a result, water sits there and evaporates. So you really need to make sure that water markets are highly efficient and effective to ensure that not every drop is wasted and we account for every drop. And that's the difference. That's I guess that's how we take the approach is that we don't actually, you know, yes, we build with blockchain technology, but we don't own the infrastructure to which we build our water markets on, it's owned by the participants. So that's a very different proposition to how the proprietary water markets work where individuals will own the water markets, they'll own the data. And then obviously with Expansive being American, Expansive gets to monetize that data in a way that goes offshore. So these are the things that are starting to become more compelling. And I guess when we picked up on all of this back in 2016. We kind of suspected that this tech would be really useful, but again, because it was so early, we've had to go through the whole ups and downs of the tech. You know, there was a time there in 2018 where nobody wanted to talk to us, like nobody. Everyone's like, you keep that blockchain, you know, we don't want to talk about that tech. So, yeah, so I guess those are the challenges, information asymmetry. There's a lot to unpack in what you just said. I'll just try to just point at the various directions I'd like to explore with you. You, you mentioned how you see additional value in using the water better. And if I'm right, you've been putting a number on that value, which is $8.4 billion in agriculture exports. So that is what's somehow frozen or forgotten in the system with, with the way it's working today. We're going to go a bit deeper into that one. You mentioned the brokers. I've myself been in contact with Water Exchange at some point when I was trying to understand how that works. It's a weird word from where you're not really into it, and it questions your intention to cut them out. So that's also something I'd like to, to discuss with you. And you mentioned how blockchain would be the solution for that, and I'd like to understand how you roll out the blockchain. So let's start with, with that first part. I saw you saying that giving me hints that you don't want to cut out the brokers. So I'd like to discuss that with you. But let's start with the blockchain element. You made some pilots. How does that really look like in practical steps? How do you roll out blockchain to replace, amend, supplement? I don't know that market. We can sort of say that blockchain is now mainstream. But when you go back to 2016 and 2017, we really only had Bitcoin and Ethereum. And Ethereum was still emerging. The community was building the Ethereum virtual machine was still trying to get stable and stuff like that. So, And there was a lack of documentation, SDKs and all that sort of stuff. Obviously, the world is very different now. But in the early days, how we got started, and this is probably a really important point because the way we got started is not through an ICO where we kind of went, ooh, blockchain, we need to go find a problem. You know, we need, we've got blockchain now, let's go find a problem to solve it with. And that's fine, I mean, because obviously a lot of people did go with that approach to be very successful, but because I'm a, a little bit more pragmatic, we had an opportunity to work with the Australian government 
in early 2017, just for three months, because they put out some problem statements. And one of those problem statements to be solved was how do we increase confidence in the Australian water markets? And um, we were one of four companies that were selected and we were only six weeks old. Our company was only six weeks old. We put the application in and they selected us crazy but they did because we were the only tech company that were came through the lens of perhaps it is the way the markets are designed that could be the problem not necessarily how water is managed so anyway we got selected and we did that project for three months and we produced a feasibility study I guess that's one of the most important things is to really ensure that you understand the problem you're solving do you have the right problem that you're solving? What are your assumptions and hypothesis? And how do you actually get some additional information to verify that that is the right problem to solve rather than thinking you know what the problem is? So we did a feasibility study to really verify. And what we found was that the problem statement that the Australian government put out actually was not the right problem to solve. And because we were young and, you know, we challenged them and we gave them evidence and we said, look, because they were saying that the problem with the water markets was lack of information. And yes, while we agree that there is an information problem, what we found was the trading was the problem. The ability to trade was where the bottleneck was, and there was a whole reasons for that. And once we got consent from the Australian government to alter our quest problem statement and verify our hypothesis and everything, they said, okay, go ahead and continue doing the feasibility study and we'll see where we get to the end. But the other three participants stuck with the same problem. They didn't challenge it just because we're a bit different. So we put together the feasibility study and I want to make sure to everyone is that we did look at obviously ERC-20s, which are the standards for tokenization. You know, we looked at tokenization and that sort of stuff. Yes, NFTs for your today listeners. Yes, NFTs and fungible tokens way back then. I've picked up that you said that water was non-fungible, which made me think water is an NFT, but really that is my layman brain. So, Yeah, well, you need it to be fungible, but I'll explain a little bit later about why it's non-fungible and fungible at the same time. So what happened was that we submitted our report and we, we had the bare bones of what Water Ledger was going to look like. And I think that's one of the things why we're probably still around is that we didn't actually go and say, right, we're going to go build the tech and spend two years building it and then come out and go, ta-da. We really wanted to know, is this a problem that this technology has a place? Will it make it better? And if so, how will it make better? What will it solve? And, and that's basically what we went with the Australian government. But this was 2017, June 2017. And even though we were judged as the most innovative approach, they didn't feel that the regulatory environment was ready for this conversation. And this is, I'm going to talk about that later because this is very, very key, very, very important. So they passed on us and they said, no, thanks, Civic Ledger. You're really innovative. I'm really excited for what this is, but we just don't think that this tech is going to thrive in this particular problem for many years. It's going to take many, many, many years and we're just not ready for it. So they handed it money to one of the teams that stuck with the problem. <laughs> so they handed a million dollars to, I won't say they who they are, but they got a million dollars to go do something. That is an aggregation platform. But what we did is we put the tech down, we put Water Ledger down for a little while because we were quite defeated. But anyway, but we learned a lot. And we went off and did some work with IP Australia and we started, look, yes, we started using NFTs for patents and that work got taken to Geneva. And then back in 2018, when When we had the crypto winter and nobody wanted to talk about blockchain, we buckled down and did serious R&D. 
and we really pulled Water Ledger apart. We really, really pulled it apart. And then once we had a little bit of an MVP, that's when I went out and started talking to the people that own the problem, the irrigators. And that's when we started to get some traction because when you get them looking at you going, this is what we want, it actually speaks much, much more louder than our voices. That is something where I'm really curious. You, you mentioned you go to the irrigators and you discuss blockchain, R&D, and how do they react? Funny that, isn't it? Yeah. As I said, you lean in with the problem. And when you've really spent all of that time articulating what the problem is and going down all that sort of stuff and then understanding how this technology can bring surface data that they need in real time and you can actually do that through contracts and stuff like that, it actually speaks to them because they don't care about the tech. They say, can this solve this problem, this problem and this problem? And you go, yes, yes, yes. And they go, let's take a look because they want to have control of their data. They want to be in control of their water markets. How does it look like for them physically? At the moment, because it, it's it's going through its redevelopment because obviously we're doing all of the deployment this year and moving out of, out of testnet into mainnet. So it, it looks like if you went... If you went to a crypto exchange and you could see an order book, so you can see your dashboard, you can see the state of the market, and you can actually see the order book and the history, and you can see an audit log. And that's the thing that we did, which is quite unique to what we do, because we had to learn a long time ago when we did when we did our pilot in 2020 up at um, Far North Queensland, we realised, you know, when you start out, you really want to be what we call, you know, 100% blockchain, and you can't. You can't, you still need to get data out so you can do analytics and things like that with it. So we split the smart contracts into two and one that was executing the rules to which you could have a compliant trade. But we also created a, a listening so the, the, the contracts were listening when the when data was getting updated. And what that was doing was it was creating an instant audit log of every execution of contract in the market. And that was our light bulb moment because what it did, what we didn't realise we were doing it, but what we were inadvertently doing was creating a real-time audit log that gave us a state of the market to give us a one source of truth. So in effect, we're able to show through an audit log that was linked to the Ethereum blockchain when a an account was set up or a water right was issued or a trade was put onto the market or a trade was settled, still by taking into consideration of privacy and security and all that sort of stuff. But that became very important because that doesn't exist anywhere. And it's a public window. If I get it right, there's this element of blockchain, you can one-to-one -one just trade a portion of water on the blockchain. But there's also that element of being the one broker to rule them all with heavy brackets, because you now are building this common books of orders, which is now reconciliating all the platforms. Yeah, that's correct. So because in Queensland, we have 23 water supply schemes, which are 23 markets. You can imagine that they're like little nation states, because inside the borders of those of that water supply scheme are rules. And they're very specific to that water supply scheme because they have to take into consideration hydrology and catchment and water supply and access, whether it's in a dam storage, it's got water channels, you know, irrigation channels. So it's very unique. And that's why we call water resource systems a non-fungible because one water resource system cannot trade with another water resource system because the rules don't let it happen because of hydrology and distance. And water is really, really heavy and you need a lot of energy to move water. But when you do a trade, you're agreeing on 
when you're going to take that water out of the irrigation channel. So it has to be all aligned with hydrology and flow. And it has to be put in order. Yes, yeah, so there's a, there's a water delivery right. Yeah, there's all of these different rights that you have to have. So a water resource system has multiple uses. So in a water resource system, particularly in regional parts of Australia, you'll have the utility, you know, the one that's doing the town water supply will have the same access to the same water resource system along with agriculture, along with industry, along with the environment. And they're all very, very different because they have different rules, rights, responsibilities, different licensing, different permits. But with agriculture, agriculture is mostly about 70%. 70 to 80% of water and water storage is used for agriculture. And then it's all split into zones. And then you have high priority water, you have low priority water, you have medium priority water, you have carryover water. And all of these are unique characteristics. And so because of the beauty of technology like blockchain allows us to codify the rules, we can actually tokenize an entire water resource system, which is the supply, and create through water wallets the demand is mirrored in those water wallets around people's allocations. But every water supply scheme globally needs to have a sustainable yield. So you think California... California doesn't really have a sustainable yield anymore because they've got more water right holders with an allocation that exceeds the sustainable water levels in the catchments to which those agriculture farmers are extracting. So nobody wants to go to the regulator and say, hey, I need to do a trade because they'll look at their water right and go, um, I'm just going to change that because we don't just don't have enough water anymore. So we're able to use accounting accounting, the old-fashioned accounting, but we use triple-entry bookkeeping rather than double-entry because triple is the blockchain. So we can actually create a relationship between an entire water supply system and tokenize every megalitre and assure that whoever has allocations in their wallets cannot exceed the sustainable yield of that water supply. And that is a very different step change on how water markets are operated today. Which leads me to two questions. The first is you mentioned hydrology. Is it something which somehow comes into play in your system? Good question. See, this is the important question. So if you've got any engineers, obviously your background, but when you have a conversation with your engineers in water who build water infrastructure, can you ask them to create a digital twin? That would be amazing. We don't have sensors. We don't have IoT. And what the water market needs is to read data from meters and sensors to get an understanding of flow. Because if we understand flow, we can actually codify and say, look, you know, if this then water is moving this flow with this volume, you can deliver that water. So yes, the water, the trade can occur. If it's low flow or dry, then the water can't get there fast enough. So then there's a challenge with the trade actually being approved by the water operator. So if we had interoperability with the water delivery infrastructure, yes, that would be amazing. But that again is still emerging in the water industry because they take their time with technology. They want to take their time with digital transformation. Don't talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, look, it just makes me crazy because it's it's so sensical. You know, you need to have we do a digital twin of a water market. But a water market interoperates with delivery infrastructure. And we know that governments all around the world spend billions of dollars on water infrastructure, storage, channels, dams. And then they go to the agriculture market go, well, um, oh, sorry, we forgot the water market. <laughs> well, we better go get that sorted out. And it's done in the wrong way. I would say your limit to that extent is that 
it's not all the countries in the world which have water markets, which limits a bit the water industry output of developing that. Well, a good again, it's very important because this is, again, we see voluntary markets like you have voluntary carbon markets and voluntary nature markets. So we do have voluntary markets where communities do agree because, you know, agriculture farmers will get together and they'll agree on how they're going to share their water. But you are right. There are countries where formalised water markets don't exist because the whole idea of putting a price on water is highly political. When you start getting talking about water, what happens? It gets highly politicised. So everyone gets inertia. Oh, we can't make that decision. We can't do that because I'll lose my seat. But what we see, like we build water markets from the bottom up and our ultimate goal through the, the world that we work in is to create community exchanges. So the water wallet, it gives you the ability to assert that you have a right or assert your allocation and therefore, we can all agree that you have a right to be in the market and this is how much water you have. And then you can actually set up your own community exchanges. And you're still sitting within the regulatory world, but you don't have to ask permission from government to set yourself up. And then, you know, because the data is transparent and we can actually, there's an ability to share data back to the regulator and say, here, take the data and show. we can show you that we're being compliant to the regulation. That element is incredibly strong. I mean, I can give you the example of the conference I've given a couple of weeks ago, which was to me the first occurrence to talk about you to a greater public. And uh, the reaction I got after the conference, many, let's say, older generation people came to me and said, you're the useful idiot of capitalism and of the great capital because water is like air when you start putting a price on it. And I can talk two hours to explain why it's nonsense, but there's things you can argue and things which are so entrenched in people's conviction that it's hard to debate it. Yeah, and you sort of ask the questions, Who are you actually using water to grow food to create an economic GDP for your nation? And if you're not, you need to step out of the conversation because you're not the one with the problem. The problem is for farmers and agriculture and industry who actually need water. And we know all verticals across the planet require water to, to you know, fashion, food, mining, industry, all require a water input they need to get access to water. So it has to be in incorporated into how they understand their business models or how they operate. And, and water must be key to that, but they need to understand its value and its price. There's a tropism. People look at what they drink and what they drink is 1% of the 10% share which goes to municipalities. So it's nothing compared to what the agriculture is using. But why do we pay Coca-Cola when we go buy water? I'm going to go buy a bottle of water and it's going to cost me $4 and I'm cool with that. But don't ask a farmer to pay for water because it's unethical. It's, it's you know, it's a human right. It's like, you know, what's the balance here? And that's the thing is that I think sometimes people who do have an opinion, they're entitled to their opinion, but please go and speak to the people who actually have the problem because they know that water is the most precious resource on the planet for them to do what they do and supply us food and keep us well and keep us closed. So don't patronise them. Just go and really understand how water does need to have a price and to be sustained as a public good and a cultural value, but also understand it's economic good because without water, no industry on this planet would be able to make a dollar. Which is a very elegant bridge to close the sidetrack I opened. I'm sorry about that. So you've been talking with those people because you've been talking with the irrigators. So that was one part of my question. The second part of my question in what you said is that if you're this mega market, which brings all the transactions under one decentralized roof, how do brokers react to that? 
Oh, look, you know, that's really fascinating. I had, because um, a couple of, a couple of years ago, it's about 18 months ago, the Australian government did an inquiry into the Murray-Darling Basin. It's called the ACCC, which is our watchdog in Australia, and they spent quite a lot of money and time going around the, you know, the Murray-Darling Basin just trying to understand what the problem was. And they opened the door up for submissions, and we made a submission. And, um, you know, I was very transparent because we were just about to start the our pilot up in Maripa Tambula. So I thought, you know, we're, our values is about open and being transparent. So I, our submission was very detailed. It really talked about what we were doing in Maripa Tambula, how it was going to work, what the problems we were solving, how the tech we were actually going to be applying it. And, you know, I thought nobody's probably going to read it because, you know, who's going to listen to a tech company? Not going to listen to us. But anyway, we did have some people read it. And when Queensland finally opened up on the 13th of December, a broker did contact me and he was heading up to Brisbane. He said, you know, is it okay if we have a catch-up? And I said, yeah. And he actually said to me, I've been waiting for two years to meet you. I have your submission on my screen and I read it because I, I'm i afraid of it. I'm scared what you're doing because I'm a broker. But on the other side, I understand it's the right way we have to head. So how do we get that balance? And we had a good conversation. And as I said to him, I said, Broke, what brokers do the best is that they build relationships. They're in the community, you know. They drop the kids at the school where, you know, they're selling water to the people that are other parents. So they're an important connector in a community, but their challenge is the counterparty risk because when water is traded, the water, the order goes in and the broker is the middle guy that holds the money whilst they're waiting for the trade to be approved by the operator. So you're holding the money and waiting. So there's a lot of risk with that. But the thing is, is that that trade is taking so long and that, that money is not with the buyer. It's sitting with the middle end guy. So this guy can't do anything. This person can't leverage it, can't borrow it out or do anything with it. It's stuck in the middle. And that's a lot of counterparty risk. And there's a lot of paperwork that the brokers have to go through to demonstrate compliance. So what we do is we remove that compliance piece for them because it becomes automated so they can focus on what their value is, which is building relationships, building confidence, education, and really being able to do their job better because all of that risk is taken out of their remit. So we don't want to replace them. They are highly valuable. They have a very important role to play. But how do we take that risk with all of that paperwork and all that compliance that they have to do. So that does mean that they will become the operators of that blockchain. We'd love them to be part of the platform and to create a special place for them where they can possibly set up their own account and dashboard. So they will have a, a mini market, so to speak, whereby they're actually facilitating the trades and things like that. But they're able to see their own dashboard. They're able to see the liabilities, the current liabilities are outstanding when the trades have been approved, but they don't actually have to hold the money anymore. And that's a problem. And, you know, water and money don't move at the same time. And you want water and money to move at the same time. You mentioned how some trades could be done five times with the same water allocation, and then somehow it's reconciliated, which means that four guys are holding the money and can do anything with it because that trade cannot happen because the water doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And it's not until it gets reconciled. And it's, and it's hard work because the accounting systems are complicated. They don't interoperate with the regulator and they don't operate with the market. So as I mentioned, it's, you know, I was talking about, you know, tokenizing the whole water resource system and ensuring that all, you know, there's sustainable yield tokens in the wallets. So 
one of the challenges too is that often the accounting systems that the operators use don't hold price. They don't collect the data around how much the water was sold for. And that's a problem because if you're missing that core piece, it's very difficult for irrigators to know how much they should be selling their water for. So what we see is a lot of zero value trades going through the system. So that distorts the average volumetric price because the trades prices aren't being correctly recorded. So again, we have a distortion of what actually is the true price of water in some locations. So there's a whole other area around that that we're solving around water accounting and we're leaning into the, you know, the, obviously the Global Reporting Initiative and the CDP are core standards for water accounting. And then we have a water accounting framework that brings it into how we actually apply that into the sort of permissioning engine that we do around compliance and things like that. Katrina, uh, to be very transparent with you, we're not even halfway through the number of topics I'd like to cover with you in that deep dive, but I have to be cautious of your time. So I can list you what I'd like to further discuss with you. Uh, the tokenization you've been referring several times, I'd like to really go into the depth of it, understanding the ins and outs of this non-fungible or fungible element of water, seeing the, the perspective about what you intend to bring for the overall agriculture market in, in Australia, the links you've teased us between the future IoT and digital twin that may happen on the water system and what you're trying to digitalize in terms of market. And that is just, just scratching the surface. There's so much more I'd like to discuss with you. Can I propose you a deal at that stage, which is let's close this first part, let's call it a first part, and let's make a sequel very, 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 very soon. Does that sound about right for you? That would be amazing. Thank you. Then I propose that we close for today and we jump to our agendas. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.